I'm satisfied if I died tomorrow, if I had one day to live, I say, well, I'm not ashamed of anything I did. I'm not ashamed of thy neighbor's wife. I'm not ashamed of the life I lived to write thy neighbor's wife. I'm not ashamed to live in a, in a, in a sex commune and in Sandstone, California in 1973, 74, 75. I'm not ashamed of running massage parlors. I'm not ashamed to be a customer massage parlor. I did that. I wanted to know the truth. The only way you know the truth is you live it. You live it. You mix with it. You, 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 you go with the story. You live the story. You don't get it secondhand. You do it. You're there. You're a participant. You're a frontline observer. You're, you're there. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. I am really happy to be able to have 88-year-old Gay Talese, a legend in nonfiction with some of the greatest profiles that have ever been written, chiefly among them Joe DiMaggio, Frank Sinatra's Got a Cold, did tremendous stuff for the New York Times and Esquire. And uh, Talese, for me... uh, is a strange one because the first time I ever reached out to him it was not the most auspicious beginning (laughs) I was trying to report on uh, a difficult story and Talese had been somebody who was a witness to some of the characters and uh, it was almost sort of an altercation and in subsequent uh, times that I've reached out to him uh, the tenor totally changed and this interview is interesting because I felt Talese is somebody who's so hyper-observant. I mean, that seems to be what he's so noted for. But I always kind of wondered how self-aware he was. I, I, You know, those two things don't go together very often. Sometimes they do. Um, but Talese was really vulnerable here. And, you know, just inevitably there's going to be an elegiac quality to t- discussing his work because the guy's 88 years old. And his wife is in ill health right now. So I thought there was a kind of unexpected vulnerability to him discussing where he is and his legacy and what criticism has been like as well as phenomenal success. And this this was very interesting for, for me to catch him at this moment. So much of this stuff is just timing. And I think we had some good timing for this. So I hope you enjoy Gay Talese, my guest this week on tourist information um i thought we might start um with a story that i've heard you mention as one of your favorites which was going to havana to cover muhammad ali and taylor stevenson meeting fidel castro yes that was that was a very interesting experience for me for a couple of reasons one of the reasons it, it was in 1990, I think 97, 1997, and I don't know how old I was. I'm, I was born in 1932, and when I was in 1965, when I got the assignment in Frank Sinatra that was published in 1966, I was in my, my 30s, and... Um, and when I did this uh, story with Muhammad Ali, 
1997. If that was 96, 97, I'm not sure. But I had a, I, I couldn't get it published. It was sort of like the Sinatra piece. In fact, those pieces are very parallel. The reason is in the Sinatra case, I, he wouldn't talk to me. But in the, in the Ali case, he couldn't talk to me because of his Parkinson's. But what's interesting to me, that both pieces are, are, both of those articles are fairly long, and both of them have the main character not, not doing, not, I'm not, not interviewing either of them. Both of those stories are told from the point of view of secondary characters, minor characters, and that's what I specialize in. I always like to write about not the main character, but the people around the main character and how they see the main character or the main story. Well, what was, what was professionally interested, what I, was, what I reflect upon is I don't know that if I had that deal, the Holly piece, which I think is even better than Sinatra piece, but there's sort of the same piece. Hmm. But I couldn't get it published. Now, I think that was a change. I mean, you're not doing a, a, a whole program on, on, you know, magazine writing or but, but really, as a writer myself in nonfiction, the world had changed a lot from 65 to 96 or 7, that 30-year that period, because the long pieces that I was able to do when I was in my 30s, mainly for Esquire in the 1964, 65, 66 period. That's so when, when Tom Wolfe mentioned new journalism, that was around 65 or so. <clears throat> but in 1997, it was turned down by the New Yorker, Esquire, the, the, every uh, Sports Illustrated, even commentary. And later on, was reissued. The later, on, the later on, it became collected as one of the best, one of the best pieces of the year by the great of the essays, the, the essay collections of, of Houghton Mifflin. But what I'm trying to say is. That was very the art of the magazine piece, which I always partici always like to think I participate in because I took so seriously how well a magazine article could be if you took your time, you wrote it well, you researched it thoroughly, you constructed it like a short story using the tools of the fiction writer while applying the strictures of the nonfiction writer, which is to say accuracy or reliability and 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 in transparency, um, but the but the piece called Ali and Havana was one of the last pieces I tried. One of my last long magazine pieces because I thought the era of the so-called important magazine article, the time of the art of the magazine article, was pretty much over. Mm. When I wrote that piece, it was like the end for me, at least, of looking. To, 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 to thinking of the magazine piece as a real art form. What happened was, long before that, the tape recorder intruded upon interviews so much that the magazine article was somewhat reduced in, to a large degree to a question and answer, Q&A piece, you know, where a celebrity was asked questions by someone with the tape recorder and the question and the, and the replies to the questions by this by the principal person, the subject of the article, the subject of the interview, became it became a that the art the, the magazine piece was taken away from the reporter, the writer, 
and put into the to, to, to the voice of the interviewee, the subject. So the so so the, there was a transferal of from point of view from the from the reporter writer interviewing someone, observing someone up close or afar. Uh, in my case, somewhat remotely, because Sinatra wouldn't talk to me and Ali couldn't talk to me, so I talked to other people about them. But when, when I wrote that piece in 19, I believe, I believe it was 1997. You could correct me, Rob, but I can't remember. But what I, I'm I, trying to say is that that was, a, that was one of the last, at least in my career, the recognition that the great magazine pieces that I wanted to do were not so doable as they had been when I was 30 years younger. Mm. I, I, wonder, I wonder for you, I read a quote that you said about working on that piece, that it was one of the most exciting experiences of your career. Um, I wonder what made it that for you? Was it the proximo, proximity to Ali and Havana as a backdrop and Fidel Castro or Taylor Stevenson? Well, mainly they, I'm, I'm meeting two great, figures of of the 20th century. Yeah. I mean, here you are these two giants who defied the government, so singularly opposed the power of Washington. Ali refused to fight that war in Vietnam, and he was willing to give up his career. In fact, he gave up three years of his boxing career, the prime of his life, to, to re refuse to fight in a war he'd did not want to fight in the Vietnam conflict, and and just didn't he 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 he, 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 he gave up his livelihood as a fighter because that's what he believed. And the case of Castro, his wanting to run a country his own way, getting away from the dictatorship of Batista, who who preceded him. The gangsters, the, the, the dictators were okay with foreign policy, but when Castro came in and was was named a communist, we suddenly, we in America, I mean, wouldn't tolerate him. He he was, and he stood up. I mean, we had the mafia trying to kill him, the the Bay of Pigs trying to kill him, uh, President Kennedy tried to kill him, Lyndon Johnson, every, which we made that life, made his country, they we so strangled his country economically and socially because we loathed Castro so much. And I thought he was that defiant nature rep represented in a way uh, made him a re relative of Muhammad Ali. I mean, those two men were both singularly uh, so committed to believing that they could stand alone and did stand alone. They had to stand alone in, in their own belief. And I thought well, I was seeing, I mean, I was I was witnessing the life of two men who would go down in history long after we're all dead uh, as, as, as personalities of historical importance that would be part of the ledger of the, of the faraway future. So, and I, there they were. I was watching them together, not speaking together because of Ali's impairment, but I was within, you know, a yard of both Ali and Fidel Castro standing, you know, next to the interpreter. And I thought, boy, I'm I'm seeing a lot in my lifetime. I mean, in my whole life, I'm, I'm 80, 
I'm 88 years old, so I started writing, you know, for for, for the for, for publication probably almost 70 years ago. So I've been public published writer for close to 70 years, going back to my early journalism with the New York Times, which started in 1953. And I thought, here I am in this room and in, in in this in this uh, official building in, in Havana with. Ali on my left and Castro on my right, and I'm I'm visibly present and witnessing the two of them. It's a, an exciting time in my life. But I've had other. I mean, I you know, as reporters, sometimes we're, we're right near major figures. I, I've stood next to you know, for my, I was with a, with a few feet of Martin Luther King in Selma, Alabama, when I covered the march to Montgomery in 1960 in March of 1960. Five and I was when, when Khrushchev came to New York and visited the Empire State Building. I was within a few feet of, of Khrushchev, the Russian leader. And I've been near, you know, Eisenhower and Truman and Kennedy and all, all those people. As a reporter, you sometimes get a assignment when you're you're within a few feet of the President of the United States on many occasions. But this particular time, I was with the two of those people, Ali and Castro, and I thought this is. This is really what what makes journalism such a such a great profession and such a privilege such privileged profession. You know, when you can have a front row seat to people who are on the highest levels of history making. I was very much in, 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 in impressed and and humbled by that experience. I, I wonder subjectively for you. I read. Uh a story you wrote early on in your career about encountering Bobby Fischer as a, as a child. I think he was only 11 or 12, and you wrote You're about right. it for the New York Times. Um, I know Harry Benson, who I interviewed once, who photographed many presidents from Eisenhower all the way to, to Trump, said that Fischer was the most interesting person that he ever photographed and, and ever met. I wonder for you, subjectively, who captured your imagination the most in actually meeting them, interacting with them, reporting on them? Well, you say Benson probably photographed Fisher after he'd been declared the champion chess, chess master of, of of the world. Yeah. yeah. I was with Fisher before he was Fisher. Yeah. You know, sometimes you meet people and you don't, of course, they're, they're not yet famous, they're not yet old enough, they're not yet who they will become. And so what you're seeing is a work in progress. And what Bobby Fischer was when I met him was a work in progress. He was a, just another genius. I mean, I could have met some, you know, musical prodigy or he was a prodigy. Now, I wrote about him just as, it was just a story. He was just a very impressive young person, but he wasn't the world-renowned Bob character that he would become, partly because of chess, of course, and only because of his eccentric personality. I mean, he was really an eccentric personality. Mm -hmm. uh, but when I met him, he was just a, he was just, just one of those, you know, a lot of, lot of prodigies in the world of music or the world of, or in the world of chess, they're, 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 it's not so uncommon. So I wrote about him. And later on, I realized when I got older and he got older, wow, I saw I was up close to Bobby Fischer. I probably wrote one of the first stories about him. 
goes out of there's a New York Times it was picture I don't remember the year, was it fifty six or fifty five or something like that? It might have been Yeah. Somewhere in there. I was just I was a young sports writer. I probably was in my first or second year on the New York Times. I, I, I came out of the army in fifty 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 six and joined the sports department that same year. Uh, I'd been a copy boy a couple of years before that. Before I went, I copy boy for a while, wrote some pieces of copy boy, then spent two years in the army from fifty-five to fifty-four to fifty-five. And I came out of Army fifty-six. And that Bobby Fisher piece was probably in my first year of the sports in the sports department. I did a lot of did a lot of you know profiles. I was mostly a feature writer. Not I didn't cover sports as a beat writer. I covered sports. as... I wrote about sports people, but I didn't want to cover the games. Mm-hmm. Uh, I read, I've, I've read in some interviews you've given that your aim with literary nonfiction was to recreate what you fell in love with with F. Scott Fitzgerald's short stories, such as Winter Dreams or John Cheever, John O'Hara. Yeah. I, I wondered, um, did you meet any of these writers that you admired so much? Did you ever have a chance to meet Fitzgerald or meet J.D. Salinger, the kind of people that inspired no, you? No, no. I, I, I did meet a couple. Uh, I met Erwin Shaw. Huh. I met him, and he was my best man. I mean, I had a very... Erwin Shaw, unfortunately, is not a name that matters to people who are 30 years old or 40 years old. He goes back to my post-World War II writer. And so my generation would be appreciative of, of writers that are not known at all, but that's not that's not so unusual. Every generation has its own writers, has its own songs, has its own movie actors, so that's that's fair. But one of the persons that I did have the opportunity to meet was Irwin Shaw. I, in college, I read... I was really loved... I fell in love with a short story when I was in college. Anthologies of short stories, I, would, I devoured them. And I, I read, you know... Stories by by Herman Melville's story Bartleby the Scribner was one of the great stories of all time. Erwin Shaw's story, The Eighty Yard Run, F. Scott Fitzgerald's story you mentioned, Winter Dreams, uh, Carson McCullough's story, The Jockey, made a big impression on me. I even stole her. I even fucking plagiarized her. I wrote a piece in the New York Times once on a jockey. I, I made mention of this. In a, a sports collection of mine called the uh, um, the uh, quiet quiet hero. Was, uh, I wrote a, a collection of sports pieces, and uh, I mentioned Carson McCullough's story, the jockey, and I mentioned later on in this introduction to this sports collection I had. A, a quiet season of a hero. How her story called the jockey that appeared in the New Yorker in 1944. I read it. I didn't read it in 44. I read it was in a collection of short stories somewhere. I interviewed a jockey and I asked the jockey if if something the Carson McCullers described a lamb shop in the in the stomach of a jockey. You could actually see the lamb shop. So thin was the jockey. So undernourished was the jockey at that time. And I talked to a jockey for the New York Times, I, and I asked if you, if you could see a lamb shop, and the guy said, yes, you could do that. 
And I wrote I wrote a piece. I, I can't quote it now, but I remember I took a short story by Carson McCullers, and, and when I interviewed the jockey, I referred to that story and framed my story along the lines of her short story. I did it many times. I was trying to take the short story form, the fiction writer's form, the storyteller, the dialogue, the interior monologue, the descriptive phrases, the scene setting, and I wanted to bring that into nonfiction. I wanted to be an, a, a, I wanted to be a writer of nonfiction who borrowed from the fiction writers that I admired their storytelling talent, and I wanted to move from nonfiction to fiction and form but not to betray the rules of nonfiction, which was not to make anything up. I wanted to write as if the reader would say, hey, he made that up, and I know I didn't make it up. I remember when I was a young reporter, I was writing these stories for the New York Times, not only in sports, but later on when I went to general assignments. And some of the old traditional reporters were accusing me of being a fiction writer. Oh, Gates Elise is writing fiction. I said, I'm not writing fiction. I'm not writing fiction. Well, it sounds like you're writing fiction. Well, yes, that's fine. I am, it sounds, but I'm not writing fiction. The names are, I, I wasn't using composite characters. I wasn't faking the quotes. I wasn't making up information to make it more interesting. I was trying to always defend myself as being as reliable as a old-fashioned, old-fashioned journalist. One of the reasons I didn't, I, I love Tom Wolfe, but I certainly appreciate his intense attention that he gave me in his book called The New journalism, but I didn't want to be a new journalist. I didn't want to be a journalist. I wanted to be a writer of nonfiction. So when he coined the phrase "new journalism" and stuck me in as one of the founders of it, I was both grateful because he paid attention to me that no one else had. But on the other hand, I don't want to be a new journalist. I want to be an old journalist who could write like a short story writer, because <laughs> I wanted to do all the research of an old journalist. I put. I want to be a. a, a I wanted to, legwork was the was the was the talent. The talent was legwork and follow it up with writing it well, trying to be a lyrical writer based basing your writing on your footwork, your your legwork. Hmm. Um, one of my favorite of your stories and certainly one of the most famous of your profiles was, was on Floyd Patterson, The Loser. I, I wondered as a writer what role boxing occupied in your uh, source of fascination for you? Well, so many writers, as you know, from Hemingway to Norman Mailer, Bud Schulberg, A.J. Liebling, I mean, you go on and on, Paul Gallico, different different people from before World War II, through World War II, post-World War II, people like me that were the writers of the 60s. We all were drawn to prize fighters because prize fighters are solitary figures, such as writers are. And while fighters suffer in public, writers suffer in private. But writers can identify with the solitary personality that a prize fighter is in the ring. One thing about prize fighting, and one thing about writing about prize fighters, is you can, as a writer, you can see not only see what happens in the ring because you're on the, on, the, on the side of the ring as an observer. But later on in the locker room, you can talk to the fighter about what you both experience, what you experience as an observer and what the fighter experiences as a participant. And mostly I was drawn to losers because losers have a lot better story to tell, painful though it is, than winners. I, I, I've known 
fighters who are great fighters and fighters like Patterson that were great because they could fight, not because they were fighters of greatness. The fact that he, uh, 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 well, essentially a light heavyweight could be, be a heavyweight. Patterson was not even a legitimate heavyweight fighter. Yes, he won the championship, but he didn't win the championship against real heavyweights like Liston and Muhammad Ali. But the point was, in terms of courage, Patterson was peerless. Patterson was 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 a real champion, a real champion in the courage of getting in the ring and fighting people who were who overwhelmed them physically, and in per in Pavian Talon as well. But he had tremendous courage, and he had a tremendous story to tell because he was a human being, in the sense of being. Uh, yes, he had the boxing talent to a degree to make a living as a prize fighter and to win a championship as a prize fighter. But his ordinary life and his, his sense of of ordinariness, he wasn't a bloating braggart like Muhammad Ali or or, or most fighters. They're, 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 their ego is enormous. There has to be. I guess to even dare become a fighter, you have to believe you're the greatest in the world even if you're not. Of course, Ali was the greatest in the world, and he he knew it. We, 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 he let us know about that. But in the case of Patterson, he was a very modest man, very self-deferential, very uh, self-critical, and and such that he wanted to masquerade after he lost the fight. He didn't want to. He wanted to disappear. That's why he hid behind the masquerades, the the camouflage, the the beard, the the lights, the the, the dark glasses, the the fake fake hair, all that fascinating character and I interviewed him during my journalism career when I worked for daily when I worked for the New York Times which is about about a 10-year period as you well know I interviewed him about 30 times I wrote 30 different pieces about him I made him my literary property I was practically I probably owned his story I know they was written by many people male or included but I really knew him better than any of them and he knew me better than any of them and he trusted me in I, and and I got I, so when I finally did this piece on Esquire, it wasn't based on an Esquire assignment. It was based on thirty assignments over the years before that. I really knew that subject, and that put me in the realm of the fiction writer because when a fiction writer writes, the fiction writer has total knowledge of the subject because the fiction writer created the subject. In nonfiction, we're mostly 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 nonfiction writers or, or journalists are are making. It's like one-stop shopping. You know, you interview a person. Uh, you might. It's like like a like you know. It's it's an overnighter. It's it's a casual meeting. It might be two or three or four interviews, but it's parachuting into the story. It's not really living the story. And Patterson, I lived the story, and I knew him so well that if I created Patterson, it would be the Patterson that I knew because I had I could take such liberties when writing about him because I knew him so well. I knew so much about his life over that over four or five or six years of knowing him for those thirty plus interviews, you understand? Sure. That kind of time invested in a story that's magazine length is very uncommon. Most people, especially in the era of tape recorders, a person with a tape recorder could get enough for a five thousand word story on on a on a on a on a two day on a one day visit. You keep that tape running, and you could go on and on. But mostly there are quotes, and the quotes are not very good because the quotes all come from one day's work. 
In other words, the quotes are off the top of the head of a person speaking into a tape recorder. What I got was over five years, and I selected what I wanted to select out of that five-year experience of interviewing this one guy. And I never wrote a book about it. It was all for just an article. Hmm. The art of the article. Well, that was so the so the piece, the loser, is one of the best pieces that I ever was able to publish. But, but but it was really based on knowing a person. I probably knew him better than any other person I wrote a magazine piece about. How much was getting I, to know Customato helpful in learning the psychology of Floyd Patterson? Well, I I, I found people that I knew through Floyd. I knew Customato through Floyd Patterson. But I didn't know Floyd Patterson or Customato. Huh. Customato was a minor character in my world. In my world, I mean, I knew him. He came to dinner here. I always socialized. I, I, I had Floyd Patterson in my house many times, and sometimes with sparring partners, and sometimes as well with the manager Customato. But I didn't get any. I got no insight about Patterson Customato. I wrote about Customato separately. Interesting guy. I met him. I met Tyson later on when Tyson was a young kid in Gramercy Gym. I met uh, Jose Torres. I knew, I knew Jose Torres very well. I did many interviews with Jose Torres, almost in a small way, like I did in a big way with Patterson. I really liked Jose Torres, and 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 I and I I liked Damato too, but I didn't know Damato. He was a very he wasn't a very introspective guy. He was a very, as we all know, a very commandeering character, a very suspicious character, a very paranoid character. But interesting, and I, I, I wrote well about him. But uh, I didn't try, attempt to know him as I did Patterson. Um, did you ever have an attraction to writing about Mike Tyson, given? The Floyd Patterson connection and the no. custom auto connection? No. No, I never did. I I never did because I knew him only when he was beginning. Uh and when he was beginning, I was I was I had done my best work uh, as a sports writer. I was moving on to other things, and. Also, I was not attracted to him. I believe that he was a little bit... I, I don't believe he had the character that appealed to me. Hmm. And later on, what happened to him that got him in jail for four or five years confirmed my suspicions about him as a man that I didn't think I could write well about because there was so much about him that was despicable that I couldn't cover up for him. I didn't I didn't write I don't write hatchet pieces. If I don't respect people, I don't write about them. And I've written about some very disreputable people. I've written in Thy Neighbor's Wife about all kinds of slimy, smut peddling publishers of pornography. I wrote about murderers and Honor thy father about the the mafia family Bonanno. I, I wrote about killers, but I knew them on their own terms and I respected them. 
as I did not respect Tyson. And when Tyson, when he had that encounter with that woman in Indianapolis, wherever it was, that little beauty queen that he went to bed with and that he didn't take her home that night, he let her drift out of the motel room and didn't even get a car for her. I thought this guy, when he went to jail because of rape, because of that, he was so disrespectful. You see, if he'd had a little bit of Floyd Patterson's humanity or respect for people, he would have gone down after he had sex with that woman. I'm not sure it was Indianapolis or not, where the hell it was. If he'd taken her out, if he got dressed, taken her out of the hotel, gone out the street, taken her home or got a got one of his limousine drivers to take her home, he would have he would have not gone to jail. He was so disrespectful. He deserved he deserved the jail term not only for rape, but for bad manners. That went went, went quite aside from the rape. It was just, he he could have avoided, in my opinion, the disrespect of and the anger of that woman who later brought public charges against him if he treated her properly. Patterson would have never done such a thing. Patterson would never have raped anybody to be for openers, nor would Bill with Jose Torres. So my instinct was that, no, this guy Tyson is not the kind of guy that I'm going to spend a lot of time with. I don't care what a great fighter he is. I don't care about that. Were, were there other fighters, you know, around the time that you were covering sports, you had Rocky Marciano or earlier Joe Lewis, were there other characters in boxing that you were drawn to write stories about? That well, I wrote a, one of my first, my first important piece, according to Tom Wolf, my career to Tom Wolf as one of the champions of new journalism was Joe Lewis. Right. I wrote a piece before, a couple of years before Patterson. I wrote a piece about Joe Lewis for Esquire, which was one of my successful pieces. I collected it. It's in my collection. Um, and so Joe Lewis, I, I was, I really hit it off with Joe Lewis. I didn't spend a lot of time with him. A few days, maybe a week or so, between New York and Los Angeles, I rode in a, a plane with him from New York to L.A. He sat next to him on a plane, and met his wife in Los Angeles. And I spent time with him prior to that in New York when he was making the rounds. That's a pretty good piece. Joe Lewis, the King is a middle-aged man, or what it was called. You ought to look that up if you haven't seen it. I, I will. Um, I wondered about that. That you and have... Tom Wolf said that piece when Tom Wolf read the piece, the Joe Lewis piece. That's where he said that could have been fiction because the opening scene is at, is at the New York is at the L.A. airport when Joe Lewis is getting off the plane. I'm with him and he meets his he sees his wife waiting for him. And there's dialogue. The piece begins with dialogue between husband and wife. And huh. Tom Wolf thought that was great. Uh, because it sounded like it was made up and it wasn't made up. Interesting. Yeah, I, I have not read the piece. I will look it up after we talk. Yeah, really, you really should. If you're writing about boxing, you have to read that. That's a, that's a, that's a seminal piece. Huh. I wonder what it is about your ability to evoke such compelling material from people. I mean, Frank Sinatra, Joe Lewis, Muhammad Ali... Uh, you seem to have this knack at getting them at middle age that uh, offers something really transcendent. I, I wonder, did you know that there would be something about that time period in famous people's lives that you could 
carve out well, your I own didn't, I didn't, territory? as a rule, like to write about famous people. I rather rather thought that it was more challenging to write about not famous people. And I tried to do that because that's harder. That's more like fiction. You write about an unknown person as a nonfiction writer. If you write about an unknown person in a way that commands attention from the reader, it's because as a writer you've achieved something. You're not banking on the reader's familiarity with the subject. So if you're writing about a movie star or the or President of the United States or some general or some public figure in the world of business or finance or or culture, if, if it's a well-known person, then it's easier because the, the reader knows pretty much what the person looks like. You don't have to describe the person. But if you're writing about an obscure character, then you have to describe the person. You have to really do what a fiction writer has to do, which is create the character, make the story visible. You have to have the have the reader picture what you're writing about. It's that point you have to you have to draw pictures. You have to write pictures. You have to write pictorially. That's the challenge. When I wrote about famous people, I like to write about them when they were on the downside of their life. Joe DiMaggio was long beyond. He was long retired from baseball. Before I wrote about him, and my piece about Frank Sinatra, when he was 50 years old, he was famous at 22 years old. Uh, when I wrote about Joshua Logan, the theater director, big Broadway director, it was when he was near, near the end of his career and having a tough time. I wrote about Patterson. We always had a tough time. I was always interested in people who have something to say. And when you're when you're old, or you're your your failure, or you're considered a failure, your days behind you. You really have a lot to reflect upon, and you've gone through a lot of experiences. And as a writer, you're able, if you get close enough to the subject that you're writing about, you get you you have a you have a you're writing about all these experiences that these people have lived through. They have a life of, of meaning, a life of ups and downs, ups and downs, and that's really what great storytelling is about: having something to say. That these people have lived lived. They live through live through an up and down life, and they have something to say that that you can relate to many people's lives. You follow me? Yeah, absolutely. Were there any characters that you were really desperate or keen to profile, but just somehow it didn't work out in terms of logistically lining it up? Um, let me think. There. Well, one person I I wish I could have done. I, I spent about a year in China in 1999. Yeah, 1999, I was in Beijing. I, I was chasing a, a woman soccer player, a Chinese woman soccer player. Name is Liu Ying, L-I-U-Y-N-G, Liu Ying, and she was of the Chinese national soccer team that went to the World Cup in 1998, and she was of the Chinese team that went to the Rose Bones in Pasadena in the finals against the American team, American women's national soccer team led by Mia Hamm, who in those days was a big star. The 1998 women's American women's 
national soccer team were a championship team. And the Chinese were almost as good. And I watched this game on television. It was on ABC. I wasn't a soccer fan, and I wasn't certainly a women's soccer fan. I just watched the game. And when the woman for the Chinese team missed a penalty kick and lost the game because of her missing the penalty kick, no one else missed penalty kicks, but she did. I thought there's a loser in a way. She lost the game. But she's going to have to go back to China. She's only 22 years old. And the biggest country in the world. And I wonder how she's going to live through, in the Chinese regime, how she's going to live through that experience. So I became curious. I was hoping I could get an assignment from Sports Illustrated or somebody, but they never could. So later I went on my own. I spent a whole year. I finally, I couldn't speak Mandarin, and she couldn't speak English, but I, I, track, I tracked her down. And I spent a whole, more than a year. I traveled, I got to know her, and I got to, finally got the confidence of the Chinese sports ministry to let me follow the team, the Chinese team around. I went with the Chinese team to the Sydney Olympics in, 19, in, 2000, in the 2000 in Sydney, Australia. I went to the Olympics with the Chinese team. Writing about this one woman, this was a, a year after she blew the penalty kick in, in Pasadena. And I kept in touch with her for 2002, 2003. And I wrote this wonderful piece, but I couldn't get it published because no one cared about the Chinese women. Uh, I did, I did have, I write about it. I did write about that in a book called A Writer's Life hmm. about a lot of subjects. Uh, but I wish I could have published, I wish I could have, I, I've done some beautiful research and writing in in a writer's life about that Chinese woman, but I wish I could have had it published in the New Yorker or Esquire or someplace, and no one wanted it. But it's hmm. a wonderful piece. Huh. I, I wanted to ask you, uh, I believe Thy Neighbor's Wife, the contract you signed at that time, was one of the biggest in publishing history. Is that right? Yeah, it might have been. I'm trying to think. Uh, let me think. It was published by Doubleday. You know, I... I... Uh, I know it made a lot of money. I can tell you it was a bestseller, number one. It was number one for about three or four months, number one in the New York Times. And it sold to the movies for $2.5 million. It never was made, but it sold to Universal uh, United Artists. I think it was in 1979 or 1980. The book was... Before I think the book was just published then, and the and the movie bought it for the biggest price ever. That was the biggest price ever paid for a movie at the time. Jaws was a couple of years before that. I think like that was like two point one million, and this was two point five million for the rights to the book. Hmm. And it also sold, you know, many of all foreign editions all over the world, and and the American hardcover edition was the best. So made four or five million dollars. I was very rich in nineteen eighty. One in 1982, so during those years, 
I had a lot of money and paid a lot of taxes. I, I never had it before or since, but I'm saying that was one of the big scores in my, one of the few very big scores I had. Hmm. I just I just wondered how the pressure of signing a contract of that size and having no, a book I didn't know, that wait, gets, wait, wait a minute. No, that's not true. I didn't sign in a contract. It be, that book became a bestseller. Okay. Then okay, after I'm that, sorry. after that was finished. Yeah. Let me think. After that was finished, my next book was a big contract. Um, after that, I signed a three-book contract. With Knopf, one the first book with Knopf was Under the Suns. That was the big contract. That mm. was a bestseller too. Under the Suns was published in, I think, in 1990. Mm -hmm. And I and then I wrote a then I wrote a book called Writer's Life for Knopf, and that's what had this Chinese story in it. Mm. And I had another book I opened off was not finished yet. Hmm. I just wondered with thy neighbor's wife that you're operating at such such a visible level globally at that point. Did it? Did the process of writing uh, change in any way because no, of that No, what pressure? happened with that book? You see, that was I had written. I wrote a bestseller in the New York Times called The King of the Power. Yeah. That followed with another bestseller on the Mafia family. I mentioned the banana called Honor Thy Father. The third book was Thy Neighbor's Wife. And after I had these two bestsellers and, and I was well known uh, because I, I was researching Thy Neighbor's Wife beginning in 1972, I started to work in massage parlors. First, I was a customer and I wrote about it. Hmm. I wrote about it for magazines. So what made the Thy Neighbor's Wife experience so public is I was discovered as a researcher managing massage parlors. Because when I first decided to write about Thy Neighbor's, what would become Thy Neighbor's Wife, I thought I was going to write a book within a massage parlor. I was going to write about the different generations, the men who were the customers, men in their 40s, 50s, and 60s and older, and the masseuses who were in their early 20s at the oldest, many of them were college girls, and the college girls of the 1970s were educated women and who didn't think it was a big deal to massage and masturbate men if they were very casual about sex, unlike their mothers, unlike people of their the generation before, or the generation that the men, the customer represented. We had a look at America through two very different generations. The men, uh, middle-aged men were the customers, and the young women who were the masseuses of these massage parlors were of, a, of, of, of they were of, of of the, of the Woodstock generation. They were of the protest Vietnam War period. They were the yeah. drug culture. They were the intellectual drug. They were intelligent women who smoked grass and, and slept around. And didn't, they, they were not full of guilt with sex. They're very different. And I thought that that two generations, the generation of the masseuse 
the generation of the male customer who could have been old enough to be their fathers. I was going to do that. I was not, that's what I was going to do. I didn't do it, but that's what I started doing. I spent two years running massage parlors. I was a customer at one time, and I, but then I got to ingratiate myself with owners of massage parlors, and I took over. I didn't get paid. I didn't. I just did it as for research. But I got that got known, and a guy wrote a piece for New York Magazine. His name was Aaron Latham, and he wrote a book, a piece for New York Magazine, New York called "Evening in the Nude with Gay Elise. And I believe that was published around 1973 or four, when I was working in a mas- two massage parlors in Manhattan, and that really made for a lot of bad publicity for me because because I was I was at the time the father of two young girls and I was married of course as I still am the same woman but I was married at that time about 15 years I was married in 59 and here you got this married man and young daughters in school cavorting in massage parlors and then later on I went to a nudist camp in California that's called Sandstone. A sex, it was a sex spa. And, I, and it was no secret. I was, I was described as being there. In other words, I was, what I was doing, I was, I was researching a book seriously, but I was looked upon with frivolity and also contempt by people writing about me. This dirty old man this married man, this unfaithful man, this, this disgusting man hanging around was in the world of sex and scandal and living a scandalous life. Hell, I hadn't written the book yet, but already I was being written about in a way that was more attention-getting than, than, than what I was doing for a book. You understand? Yeah. So even before the book, I was writing a book and researching the book in a serious way. But I was also also being written about in newspapers and magazines in a way that was not serious. In fact, it was condemning, and it was also uh, disparaging of the seriousness of what I was doing, what I thought I was doing. So when Thy Neighbor's Wife was finally finished, even before it was finished, it had built up so much of an audience, mostly a contemptuous audience, because I became I became a notorious character before the book was published, my notoriety was it exceeded the smut peddling people and the sex pot people I was writing about, hmm. and and so the book itself, while it was an enormous bestseller, was also a scandalous book, and it ruined my reputation as a serious nonfiction writer. I'd had a serious reputation. When I wrote a book on the New York Times, I had a serious reputation when I wrote a book about the building of the Verrazano Bridge. When I wrote about Sonata, when I wrote about, you know, I had, I had, I'm not saying I was revered, but I was at least a serious writer. But when I wrote about Thy Neighbor's Wife, that was published in 1980, I believe, my, I was a, a smut peddler. I was not a writer. I was a disgusting, and I almost, I almost got kicked out of the pen writing. I was a member of pen. I remember I was my reputation was so bad that you would think that the defenders of freedom of expression would have 
seen me as a as a liberated writer like D.H. Lawrence or, or James Joyce. I mean, they, those people were scorned too in their time. But I was uh, I was uh, a, a loathsome loathsome figure. And so when the book was published, it was it was an event. Only later on was it recognized as a good book, as a great book. Hmm. But not when it was published. It took about ten years for readers to re- read that book in the way I wanted to have it read, which is the way it is now. Did the nature of when I that... went to incidentally when I went to uh, Cuba once, I met uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, hmm. the great novelist and Nobel Prize winner, and he read Thy Neighbor's Wife. He thought it was great. Huh. Fascinating. Uh, I wondered if the nature of that research for Thy Neighbor's Wife or the and or the the negative publicity you got for it becoming a scandal did that cause you personal friction within your family and marriage oh, of course oh of course yeah of course it did i mean it really was shattering my wife was throughout our marriage she's a book she's in book publishing and she was working um I, I think for Simon and Schuster, or maybe no, maybe it was maybe it was Doubleday. Uh, anyway, her 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 colleagues were very embarrassed, very sad, felt, felt very sorry for her because she was the wife. She was married to the author, my name is wife, and and here was this scandalous, adulterous, disgusting husband. And then wonder, why could she, Why would she stay married to a creep like that? And moreover, my daughters were then uh, in their teens. One was born in 64, that was born in 67. So they were not even, they were their, they were teenagers, young teenagers in school. And their fellow students and were, and, their, and the parents of the fellow students were again horrified that there was these poor girls had such a father as me. I put it off a really, I mean, it didn't cause any divorce, which is amazing to a lot of women, but it wasn't an easy time for my wife or my daughters, nor was it an easy time for me. I thought I was, I thought I, I, I was doing what I wanted to do as a writer. I believe if you're a writer, you have to experience. You don't, if you're going to write about the sexual revolution, you have to be part of it. You, can't, you don't write it for the press box. It's not like covering, covering a baseball game for the press box. You have to be on the field. You have to be a participant. And people didn't, didn't accept that as true. When I was hanging out with the mafia, I didn't, I didn't get it from the Justice Department. I hung around with the mafia with these killers. I, I spent time with them. I hung out with them. When I wrote about bridge builders, I, spent, I went up to the cable of the bridge. I hung out with those guys. When I was writing about the New York Times people, I certainly hung out with them. I was one of them. Uh, I always believed in participatory journalism. But when you deal with sex and massage parlors and swing palaces and sandstone and nudity, Oh, I, I was supposed to keep my clothes on and have a press 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 bag. Well, that's ridiculous. I, I don't. I didn't do it. 
and so when the book was published, I I did it. The, I wrote it the way I wanted to write it, and I took a lot of grief because what I wrote wasn't read the way I wrote, wrote it that, that, at that time. It was later on, but during that period when the book was published, it was a very difficult time. Did you did you anticipate? the negative reaction, or were you blindsided by it? Well, you see, I was I was sort of prepared. I was blindsided earlier, because when that first, years before that was published, there was a piece called Gate, uh, Evening in the New with Gay Talese. And that was published in 1973. Mm. That's, 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 like, like seven years before the book was published. So I, the bad publicity started with Aaron Latham's piece. See, I knew Aaron Latham from Esquire. He was an Esquire junior writer. He loved me. He was an admirer of mine. He was like Alex Padukle. Hmm. Our mutual friend. Yeah. Now, so that Alex Padukle was a friend of mine, and then suppose Alex Padukle wrote a piece about me that completely blindsided me. Well, that's what happened. Aaron... Latham was the Alex Paducal of my of my time, and Latham was a friend of mine, and he's he just wanted to write about my research technique. Stupidly, I I was honest with him, and then he wrote a nasty piece. I don't mean they have to be dishonest, but there's a way to write about every anything. It's how you write it. It isn't. In other words, you can almost you can be honest. But if you were careful with your writing and if your your choice of language, you can be very very explicit, but also not write a hatchet job. It's how you do it. It's a skill with language. Latham was just a sledgehammer. He didn't have a seen any skill with language at all. So he wrote a a, a, slug, a, a hatchet piece. Yeah. And that that began, and then others followed. That was the first. Others followed. Esquire had somebody named Philip Noble and and many, many others. I mean, then the women columnists, the feminists. I had, you know, was ongoing throughout the, throughout the next seven years. So when the when the articles and then the bad reviews, the book got bad reviews everywhere. Everyone reviewed it. It was like got four hundred reviews. There was not a newspaper in America that didn't review my neighbor's wife. And I don't think I got. I think I got two 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 respectable reviews out of out of four hundred. The two respectable reviews were one of them of all places, the New York Times Book Review, and it was a guy named Robert Coles who was a refined Coolly as a Harvard professor, I think it was. And the other was in Vogue magazine by Virginia Johnson. You know the Masters and Johnson name? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Virginia Johnson reviewed it and said it was an important history, historical work. That's the only good reviews I got. The most, the rest were bad reviews. Uh, how damaging was that for for such a celebrated writer, for so many profiles and books, and critically and commercially successful to f finally have, as you say, three hundred ninety-eight negative reviews to two positive ones. Um, how much did that test your resilience and resolve as a writer and as a person? Well, 
I thought the first time I had bad reviews. I never had bad reviews like this. But before that, I had some bad reviews of the Mafia book. And also had bad reviews of the New York Times book. The New York Times condemned the book I wrote about the New York Times called, my name was uh, called The Kingdom of the Power. Yeah. The New York Times chief reviewer for the Daily Paper, who, who, who's Christopher Lehman Halp, you can check that out, killed that book. He killed, the, the Kingdom of Power was killed in the New York Times by Christopher Lehman Halp. It's a terrible book. And so it became a bestseller anyway. But that was a, that was a shock because I think it was a very unfair review. I've had a lot of unfair re- I mean, I've had a lot of every writer, I don't care if you're Ernest Hemingway or, or Gabriel Garcia Marcus or John Updike or A.G. Sal, J.G. Salinger, I don't care who you are. You get, so we all get bad reviews. I mean, that's, that's okay. That's, that's, that's part of the game. So when I got these bad reviews of Thy Neighbor's Wife, it wasn't, I, mean, I got much more of Thy Neighbor's Wife than anyone else, but, but I had my taste of it before. And I've had similar, they, you know, and after that, I've got big bad reviews too. Everybody gets bad reviews. I mean, Philip Roth, the best, my, my most favorite writer, got many bad reviews. Yeah. But so what? Hmm. That's the way it is. I wanted to, I wanted to know for such a, uh, you know, a, a powerfully observant person, you're known as one of the, the great observers that journalism's ever had. How important do you think self-observation is to the craft of writing? How self-aware do you think most great writers are? Well, I really would have no way of knowing how self-aware they are. I can tell you how self-aware I am. Sure. I only, because I don't know how I could comment on other people, even though I know a lot of writers pretty well. Well, I've I've always tried, from the time I was a young school board reporter working for a weekly newspaper in my high school days, to the 88-year-old guy I am now, and I'm I'm writing a book now. I don't want to tell about what I'm writing about, but I'm I am under contract to do a book now and deliver this coming year. I'm I never have never done anything, whether it was for a newspaper on a one-day deadline or a, or a magazine with a two-month deadline or a book with a three-year deadline. I never did anything that I didn't think was my best work. Even if it got condemned, bad reviews, I, I was my best work. I never did that. I, I'm very aware of the, of the critic within myself. I'm a very aware of a standard that I have that I don't want to go below that standard. I I take enormous pride in doing the very best. I don't I don't do anything for money. I don't I don't I don't rush through I don't rush I I steal the time, demand to take the time to do the best I can do. Not that I don't meet deadlines, but I never rush something or publish something that I didn't believe was the best I could do. Hmm. Uh, aside from that, my personal awareness, I 
I try to be respectful of other people, as just as I'm respectful of people I write about. I'm respectful of people that I think that I meet, whether they're readers or not. I meet a lot of people because I go out a lot, mingle a lot. Um, I'm very careful in helping young people because I was helped by old people when I was a young writer. So people like Alex Paducal would testify, and I know I have a, I know a lot of Alex Paducals. You know, meaning I know a lot of people who are 25, 35 years old, and I. I, I'm, I, I'm a mentor to many of those people, as people, when I was young, were mentoring me, so I passed that on. Um, so aside from the fact that I've been, for 80, at 88, I said, uh, about 70 years, I've been published. Hmm. I was published as a, as a, as a, as a you know, as a a high school student in a local newspaper, college student, and then as a copy boy in New York Times when I was 21 years old, I was published in New York Times Magazine. When I was a copy boy, I wrote a magazine piece for the New York Times Magazine. So I've had experience in in a major magazine, namely the New York Times. I wrote many, many pieces in New York Times before I started writing for Esquire. During the 1950s, beginning in 55, through 1960, I wrote about 25 pieces for the New York Times Magazine. In 1960, I wrote my first piece for Esquire, and I wrote about 30 pieces for Esquire in the 60s and 70s. And so I've always, but no matter what I wrote or who I wrote for, it was the best I could do. And I've written, you know, from a, there's a book on the bridge, the book on the New York Times, the book on the mafia, the book on on uh, thy neighbor's wife, or unto the sons, or, or writer's life, or or the voyeur's motel, or whatever I was doing. I don't care if it's writing about Frank Sinatra, or Floyd Patterson, or or, or Joe Bonanno, or whoever. It's the best I could do. That's all I. That's all I care about. Uh, last question is, if we went back 70 years ago and talked to the 18-year-old Gay Talese and you told him what your career has become now that you're 88, what would, what would that 18-year-old think about that? Would he, <laughs> you know, it's, it's Well, it's quite... not that I'm, you know, I'm, 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 I'm kind of, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty modest. I don't, I don't think. I mean, I, I'm satisfied if I died tomorrow, if I had one day to live, I say, well, I'm not ashamed of anything I did. I'm not ashamed of thy neighbor's wife. I'm not ashamed of the life I lived to write thy neighbor's wife. I'm not ashamed to live in a, in a, in a sex commune in, in Sandstone, California in 1973, 74, 75. I'm not ashamed of running massage parlors. I'm not ashamed to be a customer massage, but I did that. I wanted to know the truth. The only way you know the truth is you live it. You live it. You mix with it. You, 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 you go with the story. You live the story. You don't 
get it secondhand. You do it. You're there. You're a participant. You're a frontline observer. You're you're there. And I was there through all these years from the time of 18 to 88. I was there. I was watching. I was listening. I was experiencing. I was writing what I saw. I was oh, I was hoping to understand fully so I, before I wrote fully. <clears throat> so I was. I paid my dues. And after it's all over, let's say it's over for me tomorrow. Well, I I don't want to quote Sinatra again and say I did it my way, but I did do it my way. And so I have no no quarrel. I, I lived a long life, and I I'm still trying to do something that has to be finished this year. And I like what I'm doing. It's never easy. I'm not writing with any facility. I'm not. I haven't, all the writing I've done never made it easier. This job's still slow and, and maybe slower because I'm older. And I maybe don't have the energy as I did before, but I'm still not ashamed of what I've written so far. That in this coming book, I'm, I, I like what I'm doing. And I know it's the best I can do. So my life hasn't, between 88 and 18, it hasn't changed a hell of a lot. Because <laughs> at 18, I wanted to do the same thing. And when I was 18, when I was 18, I was hoped I could be as great a sports writer as Red Smith. Well, hmm. I never became as great a sports writer as Red Smith. But I did what Red Smith didn't do. I wrote more than he used to write 800-word columns that were the greatest 800-word columns in the world. Well, I wrote 8,000-word columns. They were magazine pieces. 14,000-word column, uh, column that Frank Sinatra's a cold. I mean, uh, or, you know, long pieces like you read, uh, books that were 600 pages. Um, but there's still the same ambition as the 18-year-old to do, to do work that you're proud of. So... All I, all I wanted to do was to do work I was proud of. I wanted to do as much as I could, write beautiful paragraphs. And that's all. I, I have no further ambition. I know that it wasn't going to guarantee anything. It's not going to... I mean, you don't ever think what it's going to lead to. All you hope that you can do is write wonderful paragraphs, wonderful books, wonderful articles. And if you get noticed for it, if, if someone gives you an, a, writes you a fan letter, that's terrific. If you could pay, if, some, if someone gives you a book contract, that's terrific. But you're not doing it for a book contract. You're writing what, what you want to write, and you hope that you're going to get a reader or a couple of readers so you get a book publisher. And if you get book, books published, and also in my case, and I'm, you know we're not talking about books selling like Stephen King, which is talking about modest, relatively modest uh, bestsellers, or, or not even bestsellers. Sometimes I, I have books that don't sell too. I, I learned that not all books are successful in the, in the marketplace. But um, again, I've never been ashamed of what I've done. As I said before, I've never thought, oh, I wish I could do that all over again. Yes, I wish I could have had that book 
that article about that Chinese soccer woman published in the New Yorker or published in Esquire or published in the New York Times Magazine. But nobody, nobody, nobody wanted it. And I've written pieces before that nobody wanted. And in fact, the, the piece, Muhammad Ali, nobody wanted that. It was turned down by 12, 12, 12 magazine pieces. 12 magazines 12 magazine turned that down. I even listed them. Everyone. Then, the, then Esquire reconsidered and published it. But they didn't publish it in any, didn't feature it. It was back of the book. And then later on, it got picked up as one of the best pieces of the year, and it's been and many anthologies have covered used it. But that was a, that was not a successful the Ali piece, which is a parallel to the Sinatra piece, although separated by thirty years. I was thirty years older when I wrote Ali than I was when I wrote Sinatra. But they're the, they're the same same quality piece. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, last question, just out of curiosity, at any point did you consider profiling Donald Trump? No. No. Oh, no. I, You know, I tended not, I wouldn't want to write about famous people, and he's always been famous. And I I know him. I know him. I actually met him through George Steinbrenner. I used to know George Steinbrenner pretty much. I never wrote about Steinbrenner either. Hmm. I... I uh, I didn't want to write about people like that. I I I I I, I sort of liked found them interesting as people, Donald Trump or George Steinbrenner. I never want to write about them. I was going. To, uh, or Leo Iacocca was another famous person I knew, the automobile guy from Chrysler. I was thinking right about him. I spent some time researching and decided not to write about him. <clears throat> it was too, too famous at the time. You know what I mean? Sure. Now, that, uh, that name, Aliyah I. Coco, means nothing to you. But in 1980, he was a big name in America. He was a car salesman for Chrysler Motor Company. He was on television all the time. Big commercial su- success as a man. As an auto executive, I he, he, I had access to him. I decided not to do it. I don't like to write about famous people at the height of their fame. I don't mind writing about them like Sinatra and DiMaggio or, or Joshua Logan. The only time I ever wrote about a famous person that I enjoyed doing it, the only one experience I had of writing about a famous person at the height of his fame, only one time, is the actor Peter O'Toole. Mm. The reason I enjoyed that because Peter O'Toole was such an intelligent, such an uh, uh, interesting, and, and a nice man. He was such a nice man and brilliant. I enjoyed that assignment, which is rare. I, I usually don't enjoy those assignments. That's one I would exception. Have... I was just going to say, I would have loved to have seen the Gay Talese profile on Orson Welles, who seemed, in a sense, in the decline from the age of 25 onwards, the, the yeah, youngest well, I might has have, been. You ever. know, Peter Bogdanovich got to know him pretty well. <clears throat> yeah. But that would have been that would have been a kind of Gay Talese subject. If I, I could have done that, I didn't never thought of it, but I, I could have done that sort of thing. I certainly... Uh, the kind of research that Bernstein did 
in 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 um, Citizen Kane. He's going back and researching the character of Citizen Kane and Rosebud and all that stuff. That that is. So I'd be looking for the Rosebud as well. Mr. Talese, thank you so much for the conversation. All right, I hope it works out, and, and, and let me know how it turns out, okay? Will do. Thank you.